This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, a really hot topic right now. This, as the College Board, home of the SAT and more, adds an adversity score that rates students' hardships. It's a score that will be shared with colleges where students apply without their knowledge. So let's get into it because there's a lot of folks talking about it. David Coleman, lucky for us, CEO of the College Board, is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much. So I think the big question is, why do you feel like you need to add this adversity score? Yeah, just to get us on the right track. Uh, we're not adding an individualized score or a new score next to the SAT. We're providing some general context information to admissions officers. Let me just give you a precise example. Let's say there's a young woman in Mississippi who, who did as well as other students who are applying, but we let the admissions officer know, here's how that SAT score compared to the other SAT scores at that school. And then we tell, we use no individual data beyond her score, but we do say in the neighborhood she grew up in and in the kind of high school she went to, this is how it compares to other neighborhoods and high schools in terms of the opportunities it offers. Why are you doing it? We're doing that because what that would, in this case, allow you to see is this young woman's achievement, while it looks average to others, is in fact remarkable because she did so much more with less. In the case I'm telling you, the young woman scored 400 points more than any other student at her high school. And it's a, it's so a rural town. So it compares her to her population. That's exactly right. And her environment. Exactly right. And so the colleges will see that score. The students and parents will not. Is that true? That's why I'm trying to clarify yeah. yet once more what I'm saying. The only score for the individual student is her SAT score. Right. They'll see this general context information. Right. To be clear, it would be the same for every student in the school would have Got the it. same school context, and every student in the neighborhood would have the same neighborhood information. And we've just published that all on our website. So we could consider, by the way, sharing that with parents and students, the, the, the school and neighborhood description, as right. it were. But in candor, they already know that. Okay. Like, like they very well know that they grow up in less resources, they have challenges in their community. What's the only real insight offered here, the only thing new, is that by looking at a score side by side, the context, you find those students who, 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 who do remarkably well, who achieve very high, despite challenging circumstances. But that's for the university to see. Exactly but right. So then why not just open it up to parents? It, it may be a very good idea. I'm just yeah. saying it's not really informative to them. It's nothing about their daughter. I'm just trying to say why we didn't think of it immediately. Got it. Because it's not like saying this is part of you. It just describes your school right. and it describes your neighborhood. And I think it... it, it so so I, sorry, I appreciate that people are concerned yeah. about sharing that. Right. And maybe we should very well do it. I just want to say. But but I just don't want anyone confused that each kid is getting a second score about them or right. that we're drawing on any personal information about these kids. It's just a description of their school and neighborhood. So does well, it skew differently, though, then for somebody who's in a wealthy environment, great schools and something? I'm, ter- I'm curious how that then is incorporated. You, you are... Because then I think about that pool and then you're saying... Okay, you did well, but man, everybody else in that um, existing environment, there are folks who did better. I'll break it down and, and, and keep asking if I'm not answering you super clearly. Okay. First, we just share the data of where did your score stand vis-a-vis the other students in your class. Okay, okay. so how did you compare to other students in your high school class? Simple data. Yeah. Number two, 
did your high school, what's the average amount of college attainment in that high school? What's the average income in that high school? Is there, is there advanced opportunities like AP classes or IB classes or other opportunities for advanced work? Mm-hmm. That's factors about the school. Then we also share factors about the neighborhood, where the person's address is, which might be different than where the school is. And is that, is that a world where crime and victimhood is more likely, housing issues, other issues that create a lot of demand on a family? Are those prevalent in that neighborhood? We don't know anything about that individual kid. We only know where they live and where they go to school. Okay. It'll be interesting to see what the impact of this is because I think about it on the front end of high school, even when people – and listen, we're speaking to you in the tri-state area – people – pick their houses, pick their towns based on high schools and, you know, based on various uh, criteria. I wonder if this becomes another criteria. I think I can put your heart at ease a little bit because it's very simple. If you pick a really great school with a lot of resources, that will help your kid do better. So it's not like the simple response to this is, oh, I better go to a school. Because really what we're trying to measure here is resourcefulness. What do you do with what you're given? So if you took a child used to a high-resource school and plucked them in and dumped them in a school with much less resources, unless they're highly resourceful, they're not going to soar and excel. I'm curious because you guys did a pilot program, I think, with about 50 colleges. What was the feedback that you got from them? They were very pleased. This is something that higher ed What does that mean, though? What did they say? Yeah. I will try to, I try to answer you <laughs> statistically. No, no, I, I, I want to give you exactly what you need. Um, so at Yale, uh, they have claimed, and you can talk to Jeremiah Quinlan, the dean of admissions there, that they were able to increase their Pell-eligible student body by 3%, hmm. that they found 3% of kids, his phrase was, who were transcendent. What I think he meant was who, once you looked at their context, it was a wow what they achieved. In other words, they had met the bar, but when you looked at their context, it was more amazing. So was it kids that's, that Yale probably wouldn't have accepted I think it is saying that, you know, a place like Yale has a lot of kids who meet their expectations, and they then have to choose among those who are the most remarkable in a sense. That's Yale. That's not all colleges. And I think what he was saying is it allowed him to witness remarkable aspects of these young people that had not come to light. You see, so for example, he might not have visited small rural schools around America, so it's harder for him to get a sense of them. And he said that having consistent data across schools and having consistent data around neighborhoods let him see more. To take a different case in Florida State, Mm -hmm. uh, John Barnhill has said, yeah, I got to let in a more diverse group of students as we measure, you know, more African-American Latino students, for example, because they live in areas of concentrated duress. And they were able to show their strength. Let me ask you on a different topic about the college admission scandal and what the impact has been. Are you changing practices around accommodation and and other methods? What's, What's the implications? Where does it go from here? We have closed the loophole that was exploited in the college admission scandal. So to be clear, the most secure place to take your SAT is in your own school because everyone knows you. The second best place is on a Saturday because there are so many, there are large procedures built there. Our error was that in the accommodation space, when maybe only one or two students are testing because they have special needs, Mm -hmm. uh, we've learned that people have tried to take advantage of that third area, so we will now be triple-checking identity in those areas. In other words, making sure that most of that happens at the kid's school and making sure their identity is triple-checked so no one can be an imposter. But what about people still abusing that, you know, we're a special needs student, when they're really not? That is not what... And I don't know exactly what's the criteria or who signs off on that. I'll try to lay it out. In Varsity Blues, what happened, as you know, is not that. There was a problem where they hired someone in an accommodation situation, so we fixed that problem. Mm -hmm. You now raise a different issue, which is what about a family who asks for an accommodation whose student may not really need it? I'll tell you, we've we've just done the research in Connecticut, because... 
because we were worried, for example, of the wealth gaps in a state like that. Mm -hmm. We see more accommodations, thank goodness, in lower-income neighborhoods. I, I know this is widely thought, but, and we don't see in any neighborhood it rising over anything like 10%, which is a pretty reasonable picture. Right. I will tell you what I often worry about is less resourced families. I mean, in candor, uh, all of us think about this stuff, but a lot of families don't even know they can get some more time. Well, I do wonder, too, David, where this came out from. Was it colleges saying we need a better way of evaluating the student population, or was it you folks looking at the data and saying, wait a minute, something's flawed here? It was really the colleges that said, we want to see more talent that we can't see, because there are members, we're a membership organization, but honestly, we were very moved because we think that's why the College Board exists, is to see talent where you didn't see it before. And when you think about, you know, a handful of schools, I think University of Chicago is one going optional when it comes to the SAT. What are the implications of that? Do you see it? Do you see that number increasing? And and what do you say when someone says, I'm not so sure that the SAT is necessary? You know, I think I go back to the Mississippi case. I think the SAT is a valid test to show your math and reading skills. And if you combine it with context, you can really see kids you cannot have seen before. And I think that's exciting. I think it opens up talent. And I think that it helps balance grades in perfect candor. Grades are not perfect. We see grades rising at wealthier schools faster than test scores are, which either means they have a new form of intelligence or there's grade inflation. David, just 30 seconds. Um, it's an imprecise measure, this adversity score. Might you tinker with it a little bit? Absolutely. What we won't do, it'll never be about you as an individual, but we might see broader data that's more insightful. All of right. course we would. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much for your time. I know thank it's been you. a busy day and uh, a lot has been uh, talked about. So thank you. David Coleman, he's the Chief Executive Officer of the College Board, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Carly Simon. We have to go out to the vineyard, I think, though, to really listen to her. Um, so investors thrown off this week as trade tensions escalated between the U.S. and China. And even for those who factored in what would be that they thought would be a volatile process, they may not have realized that there may be more to come. So this story in the magazine, Business Week magazine, on newsstands now and at Bloomberg.com. Joining us right now is Michael Regan. He wrote it. He's senior editor and lead blogger at Bloomberg Markets Live blog. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. So... Tell us about your story. <laughs> well, <So>. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about more pain Michael to come. Regan. <laughs> You've been doing Oprah introductions. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll look under my chair. Hopefully there's, there's something waiting <laughs> That's for That's a new car. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it really just kind of came out of the blue. I mean, uh, you wake up the Sunday after the Kentucky Derby and President Trump's complaining about the, the results of the Kentucky Derby. And then, bam, the next tweet right after that is, oh, the trade war is back on. He wants to increase tariffs, and they followed through on it. So, you know, it, I, I look at it. Are you saying there was a correlation? He was just ticked off at the <laughs> Derby, and he's like, I'm going to go after somebody. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Anyway. Could be. Could be. But, you know, there was this this consensus and whenever like I, I think I said uh, I told Jason before whenever you hear that word consensus uh, yeah. it should make you nervous because yeah. everyone assumed a resolution was coming was on the horizon and the rug sort of got pulled out uh, from from under people so Emily Barrett a uh, real good reporter on the Bonds and FX team and, and I we sort of just took the temperature of all the the Wall Street trader and, and pundit class that we, we could uh, talk to and, and, and gather up all the notes and just try to see what is the reaction. Because it's one of those funny things that happens when you kind of have to have a stance on this. You know, whether you're a macro mm -hmm. rates 
and currencies trader or uh, a mutual fund manager with Apple in your p- portfolio. You, you sort of have to have a take on this, and it, it puts you on the spot. And it's really, you know, it's a very unpredictable thing to try to wrap your head around. There, there's so many scenarios that could unfold. It, this type of ratcheting up the pressure, some people thought, could force a deal uh, quicker. It, it could worsen the situation. It could cause a, a whole laundry list of potential re- retaliation from China. But is it a case people underestimating? So they factored in a certain amount, right, or yeah, what? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, on both sides uh, of the world, people thought this deal was, was going to get done, that, you know, they were just – Going yeah. back and forth with with some little clustering, right? Yeah, just some little revisions to the the agreement, and um, you know the the revisions from China turned out to be pretty pretty drastic, and uh, you know they kind of tested President Trump. He pushed back pretty strongly, and and so it, like I said, it, it sort of pulled the rug out of what everyone was expecting for mm-hmm. the rest of the year in markets. I just want to bring one headline uh, to the fore that just crossed the Bloomberg, and it concerns Germany. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel has come under pressure from her chosen successor to quit that job as the chancellor after this month's elections for the European Parliament. That's according to a couple people with knowledge of the situation. Our Arnie Delfs bringing us that story uh, popping up as a redhead on the Bloomberg terminal. We'll get into that story maybe a little bit later. But this AKK, is AKK. Right? Yeah. Um, well, something the magazine has covered, right. um, certainly, and, and talked a lot about her. Um, let's go back to, though, this market story. Jill Weber's with us, editor of Bloomberg Business Week as well, in our Interactive Brokers studio. You had a whole issue on, uh, or a, a big takeout on Germany, right? Yeah. That's, that's right. Because what we realized was there, Germany was is at a crossroads right yeah. now, right? And the politics are one part of it. The you look at the economic numbers, that's another one. The this great manufacturing might, um, you know, the lending capacity right. within Germany right. and like what happens with Deutsche Bank, all that stuff. It's really interesting. And this is at the moment that remember, like basically the the other big economy in Europe. It's kind of not doing so well, which we're also talking about in Business Week. So I think there's this existential moment that Germany is wrestling with. And look, all of this plays into the topic of the day, which is trade and Mm -hmm. and market. So help us understand, and I know you've told us before that a lot of what happens between you and Mike Regan is like a little drive-by. You're like, I need something smart about this thing. (laughs) I think he dreads it. He sees you coming. Here he comes. He's going to make me work. Start wearing a disguise. guy who went to like, Puerto Rico, Jamaica. 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 <laughs> I think I got to go to Jamaica to do a market story. Yeah. Uh, Puerto Rico. I think we could use story. a story out of Puerto Rico too. <laughs> so, so the trade war. Look, the, I think this is absolutely every everyone assumed that this was going to be taken care of. Yeah. And you know we you know you go back and look at yeah. Q1 stuff. Nobody was talking about this in earnings, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, by the way, there isn't a deal. And when the moment that there isn't a deal. And China and the U.S. both dig their heels in. We're looking at a prolonged battle, and it starts to look really foggy for everyone. Yeah. And markets especially do not like fog like that. Absolutely, yeah. And, I, you know, the big question is, what is the other shoe to drop? How is China going to retaliate? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then news today after the story came out uh, – Everyone is sort of glued to this obscure blog in China. Tyron notes. This is just like a great, great. <laughs> oh, this individual that everybody all of a sudden is following. Well, right? yeah, the, the thinking is that they don't want to put in the official state media, the People's Daily, uh, they don't want to sort of present their official stance there. So they're kind of putting it in the back door on this blog. And then on all the social media, the official state media retweets it or, or whatever you call it yeah. on, on WeChat. 
And uh, people are glued to these very obscure Chinese media figures. And today it looks like the, the shoe that's going to drop is, um, you know, everyone's worried about the exchange rate. The China owns a trillion plus of U.S. treasuries. Mm-hmm. The, the shoe that's dropping now is it's, they're just going to walk away, it seems like, at least threaten to walk away from the negotiating table. So it's, um, like I said, it's this su- such so many so much scenario analysis going into something that's very hard to to, to model, to but predict. the longer it goes on, the imposition of higher tariffs, right? I mean, it starts to have implications for companies, whether it starts to eat into margins, whether it's well, uncertainty. And, the, and this is, you know, the, Sing- the Singapore story I thought was a really interesting one, which was basically – in the middle of all this, don't forget about the middle guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because we're the That's ones right. that are actually, we don't want to have to play favorites. That's just bad for business in general. Well, so that's a great point, right? Like everybody's jockeying about, you know, everybody's got relationships with China, right? And they've got relationships with the United States. Exactly, exactly. Well, and I don't want to get too far away and just spend 30 seconds, if you can, Mike Regan, talking about this treasuries piece. The biggest single holder of U.S. treasuries is China. Yeah, uh, 1.1 trillion, I think it is. And um, they call it the nuclear option, this kind of concern that China would just aggressively sell but off those treasuries. they have to buy U.S. treasuries. Do they? Don't That's they? the question. Because I mean, they don't, it, don't they? There's, there's a lot of pushback, a lot of reasons why they wouldn't do this. And I'll let you read that in the story because Jason <laughs> will give me 30 seconds. Done. Right? Well done, that tease. <laughs> it's a deep tease. It's a deep tease for Mike Regan. Uh, Mike Regan, senior editor and lead blogger for the Bloomberg's Market Live blog. We had your co-host of your new podcast on What Goes Up. Is that right? Yes. Uh, earlier today. Michael Check that out. Michael Regan. Michael Regan. We're and doing Oprah announcements. Joel Weber, the editor. That one works really well. It does. It's a really, it's a very Oprahable Try Yelena Shalaitjeva. She's coming up next. I know. It's a little bit harder. Well done. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Do check out the magazine for that story and so much more on newsstands and also online. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. Yep, it's Friday. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for Business Week Economics. For that, we have the Friday crew, Alex Harris, bond reporter for Bloomberg, and Yelena Shalecheva, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. And Carol Masser is back to bring it all together we're all back together it's so nice for everyone to be back together swapping stories of your adventures in boston alex harris she's a bu graduate didn't make the graduation because she was up till three in the morning skipping her graduation because it was raining and she was (laughs) tired uh so what's going on in the bond market because we've seen you know some moves certainly on the equity side today as the trade headlines have whipsawed the market a bit alex what did you see on the other side well, just as a frame of reference, so this morning, uh, you know, they looked at me and said, uh, we need to, to prep a template in case, you know, we break through the 233 level on the 10-year because it will be the lowest since 2017. Wow. And so I was like, all right. So, you know, we prepped it. And then, you know, consumer confidence came out. And then you started to get a series of trade headlines and, and the 10-year moved back the other way. Um, you know, so we were, we're only down about you know a smidge today um and 238 off, as yeah, we speak just yeah. off of where we were this morning and you know I, I think it's a it's a good reminder for a couple of things one the headlines we were getting about trade today had nothing to do with china. And can directly I say, to do with china I, I want you to continue but something's yeah. going on because we've got the equity markets moving down um not a lot but all of a sudden it's kind of a straight move down and you've you're also seeing yields 
moved down to. So I don't know what's going yeah. on. Anyway, and, and go they, so you had these. You, you have trade headlines, but then you have, like, cross-currents within the trade headlines. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Big you have time. headlines related to Europe and auto tariffs getting delayed, you know, and related to Japan for about six months, we're talking. Then you see, you know, an agreement to drop the steel tariffs related as it relates to China and Mexico and that trade deal. And then, you know, or, excuse me, Canada and Mexico right. and that trade deal. And China is still kind of hanging around out there. And I think it's just there's so much uncertainty so you're heading into a weekend. Are people I, starting to, just to play off of what we just heard from Mike Regan, and then I want to bring Elena into this, because I am curious if people are starting to think this is going to linger around the U.S.-China trade problems longer than everybody thought. I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is if you seem to think or you prognosticate and have all these convictions about what the markets are going to do or not do or what the Fed's going to do or not do, like – Good luck to you, because I think that these Funny. headlines just show you that it's very yeah. hard to have some sort of long-term view here, because there's so much noise around this and very little clarity, well, and I think that's what the Friday afternoon move right. is. Why would you go in short treasuries into a weekend? Why would you go into a weekend long equities when the last few weekends we've seen is, you know... Risks. Stuff comes after. Yeah, headline risks and a lot of Twitter risks. You get too. Kentucky Derbies that don't play out like you thought. Then you've got the president uh, <laughs> tweeting, tweeting about that. trade. Exactly. But you guys, Yelena, over at the uh, Bloomberg Economics team, you've got to make projections. You've got to look out. Right. So I'm just curious, how do you feel in this okay. environment that was the week? Right. So uh, Alex mentioned those uh, uh, tariff headlines and uh, the University of Michigan sentiment. So let me just first talk about uh, the tariffs. So uh, I think... You know, it's a it's a temporary reprieve, and and you know the uh, uh, postponement of auto tariffs and uh, other headlines related mm-hmm. to Canada and Mexico aluminum and steel tariffs uh, cancellation is really telling us that Trump administration is trying to avoid escalating a multi-front uh, trade conflict, but uh, China uh, uh, conflict will remain with us. Uh, we this is our view. We might for how long? For, it will linger for a while. So I think, uh, uh, you know, the administration will move uh, with uh, the uh, with tariffs on the remaining $325 billion. Uh, but it could be delayed a little bit, could yeah. be just, you know, uh, lessened to some degree. But I don't think we will be able to avoid it altogether. And let me ask you a question, Elena, because Joe Weisenthal was here earlier, and he essentially made the case, his hot take to some extent was, Look, as long as we don't hear a lot of complaints or see big movements in earnings from companies related to trade, this is sort of a a non-event. Where does it show up in the data in a way that would make you change a projection around any of your data? The first thing uh, it will show will be business uh, uh, surveys. So manufacturing surveys, other businesses mm-hmm. surveys, such as uh, small business uh, optimism survey, maybe uh, builders, uh, things like that. So uh, the concern, including on the Fed, um, and I can talk about it a little bit later, but uh, uh, the concern is that business sentiment could get hurt to such a degree that uh, it will cause a confidence uh, crisis and uh, people just you know, companies will just uh, stop uh, investing and expanding the labor force. So there was a speech uh, from uh, Thomas Barking. He's a Richmond Fed president. He spoke this week, and uh, he basically said, we can talk ourselves into a recession. 
by just uh, uh, you know weighing on sentiment like right. that. Right. So that that was like a wow headline. Uh, but th- I think that's the biggest concern that uh, it could impact business confidence to such a degree that it could hurt uh, business investment. So uh, sentiment, uh, cons- yeah. consumer sentiment this morning, it was like 15-year high, right? We think it's <laughs> yeah. going right. to be temporary because most of the responses were collected before right. uh, the, the latest round the of... Timing uh, is important yes. on this puppy, yeah. All right, well, and we should note, you mentioned uh, the Richmond Fed president. On Monday, we're going to have the Atlanta Fed president. That's, of course, Raphael Bostic. He'll be on Bloomberg Television and Radio Monday morning at 9.30 a.m. Wall Street time. Okay, so here's the thing All about right. <laughs> okay. Joe, Joe has a point about you She's know the way in which earnings, you know, like the idea that it's sort of sanguine, but it takes so f- we have to look so far ahead in the earnings to really see an impact. I think you also have to look at the agricultural impact, mm-hmm. and you have to look at the farmers, and they're talking about another bailout for the farmers. It's like how many times are we going to see another far- a bailout for the agricultural community before it loses its efficacy? And that's what you have to worry about. I mean, and and that's where I mean, Elena could probably speak to this better than I can. But there's an where, a, there's a real impact right yeah, there. Yeah, where you're going to see this passed along to the consumer, and you know, you got to eat. So yeah. Another a reference to the Michigan survey today. What was interesting is that consumers uh, saw um, a pickup in in inflation expectations. So we they they see tariffs affecting prices uh, going forward. So that's an interesting thing. And we will continue to get those little clues about what consumers are expecting in uh, the following surveys. One thing to highlight, Powell is speaking on Monday. Okay. So that's a long, kind of long-term view uh, sort of conference, but he might, uh, you know, answer some questions about the current state of policy and the Fed minutes on Wednesday. Okay. Morning, afternoon, evening. Uh, that's at 2 o'clock okay. in the afternoon. And be just uh, as we kick off our broadcast. There we go. Looking forward to that. Yelena Shalecheva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Alex Harris, Bond Reporter, BU graduate for Bloomberg <laughs> News. Didn't Thank go you to so graduation. Much. Stayed up till 3 a.m. Couldn't make it. Boom, 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 boom. Shoot your head down. You'll understand this song in just a moment because we've got a, a book. The title of it is Boom, Bridging the Opportunity Gap to Reignite Startups. And I don't know if you know it, Jason, but the World Bank ranks the United States 53rd uh, when it comes to the ease of starting a new business. It's falling behind Russia, France, and Israel, among others. And there's other evidence out there that points to a decline in American entrepreneurship. Craig Hall is an entrepreneur, a philanthropist. He's founder of Hall Group. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote the book, Boom, Bridging the Opportunity Gap to Reignite Startups. He's on the phone from Dallas. Uh, Craig, great to have you here with Jason and myself. Tell me a little bit about, uh, or tell us, about the premise for your book and what your goal was in writing it. Well, thank you, Carol, and and that was a a great song uh, you played. Um, The the premise is that we have a problem in the United States. We're starting half as many businesses as we did 30 years ago, and for many people, the opportunity to start a business is just much more difficult than it used to be, both for regulatory uh, issues that come up and and because of a a lack of capital. And how recent is this, and what was the catalyst to sort of get us here to this negative place where we are? I think it's been going on for a long time. It's it's kind of uh, strange. When I first heard a, about this, was, which was 2011, I didn't believe it. Uh, in some areas of the country, it's it's very uh, great great for uh, uh, 
companies in New York, great for companies in Boston, great for companies in Silicon Valley. But if you're in rural America, the Midwest, or so many parts of the United States, it's very, very hard and has been just getting progressively more difficult. Well, I I, got to jump in for a second because you said about lack of capital, which I find interesting because, you know, we have a company like Uber who could stay private because there was so much capital around to pump into that company for such a long time. And we talk about how companies don't have to go public because there is so much capital around. Your po- is your point is that there is capital in certain select areas, but for a lot of the country, it's not there. But hasn't that always been kind of the case? Well, Carol, that's a great point, uh, and I'm, I'm so glad you, you mentioned it. We are good as a country. In fact, we're great at billion-dollar ideas. We're great at home-run ideas. Uh, where we lack is for the singles and the doubles or the smaller uh traditional businesses that that are really an important fabric to the American dream, an important part of the American uh, spirit. Uh, The whole idea that was built on taking risk and starting something, um, not everything is going to be an Uber uh, or or an idea that uh, Facebook or something that big. If you have a big idea, there's a lot of capital. It's probably easier to raise $100 million to start a really big uh, idea company than it is to raise $500,000 or $1 million to start a a smaller uh, venture that that the venture capital firms just don't uh, see as a home run. So what are the small things that we can do to make it a little bit easier on the margins to widen uh, the opportunity set a little bit for folks who want to be entrepreneurs? Well, that's a great question, Jason. I I think there are a lot of things being done on the margin. There's uh, uh, nonprofits that are helping uh, mentor companies, and there's uh, local governments that are encouraging uh, startups. But what we really need is more national policy. Uh, We incentize people to invest in some things like real estate or oil and gas through tax incentives. We could do similar things at the uh, federal level, and it would create more jobs. It would pay for itself because it would create more businesses, and it would create a stronger sense of community in many areas. So uh, I would say tax incentives. I would say we ought to take a hard look at the uh, national level at our regulations and see how we can cut back some of this red tape and make it easier for average Americans to become uh, owners of businesses. Craig, the point we ca- the reason we care about this, right, is in terms of job creation, economic impact. Um, the, you know, startups, businesses, smaller businesses, that's where a lot of the momentum comes from. You're absolutely right, uh, Carol, in, in, in that sense. And in addition, I think it's just important to who we are as a country, who we are as people. We have always had opportunity for many. It's, it's a critical part of how you uh, have a strong middle class. If people own a business in their local community, it makes a big difference in the community. It makes a big difference in not just the individual's life, but uh, they're closer to their employees. Uh, and, and it also creates more innovation. Uh, you know, history shows that a lot of big companies started out uh, small and didn't start out with a huge funding, but, but uh, grew, grew ideas and, and made a difference in our society. So one of the most compelling things uh, about this book, Craig, is you're an entrepreneur yourself. You were out there starting businesses, so you've given some advice. What, what's the biggest mistake you made that you would tell people to avoid? Well, I've made so many, Jason. I, I, I actually uh, I think uh, being a small business person is all about uh, uh, surviving till you thrive. It's all about cash and cash flow. And I, I would say to anyone in a small business, uh, do what you're passionate about, take risk, but also uh, watch your cash and your cash flow very carefully. 
All right. It's great to catch up with you. Congrats on the book. Craig Hall, founder of The Hall Group. The book, Boom, Bridging the Opportunity Gap to Reignite Startups. Craig joined us on the phone from Dallas, Texas. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Doug Sioka back with us, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners. Roughly $700 million in assets under management with us from Leewood, Kansas, on the phone. How are you, Mr. Sioka? I'm great. How about yourself? Good. Uh, how was this Good. week for you? Uh, it's been interesting, right? <laughs> I mean, it got off to uh, kind of a very sloppy start and yeah. regained a little footing and is having a hard time um, maintaining that into the weekend, So is maybe not a big surprise. The thing I want to ask you is, because I don't like to be too inflammatory, because I do think markets go up, markets go down. But Absolutely. I do wonder, one of the discussions we had earlier with our Mike Regan, uh, it's a story in uh, Business Week magazine this week, is just about maybe people aren't, though, factoring how difficult this U.S.-China trade negotiations are going and how it might take longer to get done and that that will ultimately have an impact. How do you see that, Doug? I think it is one of those deals that's trying to come to grips with, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you just you kind of look also, and, and, and I do agree because you and Jason, the approach is very level-headed in so much as there's going to be natural volatility attendant to a typical market cycle. We've not even seen a 5% pullback after a 25% move off the lows, right? So here we go into the month of May, and I don't think anyone responsibly could have been anticipating that. We would just take three times what we accomplished in the first four months, and that would be our projection for the return on the year, right, to where we would expect to be up 30 to 35% this year. I don't think that really was, was had, had much of a chance of transpiring. And so you go into the month of May, and what's the setup, right? You have the, the prospect very high of a trade war resolution, nice tailwind of the market, the expectation that earnings are actually going to be negative, right, year over year, maybe considerably so. Well, that's, that's a headwind. We have a neutral Fed. Well, that's kind of a headwind because this is before we'd factor in the prospects of an actual cut by the end of this year. And you had positive economic data, and that was a tailwind. So you had a lot of um, maybe equal and offsetting underlying factors that were going to make a continued market advance uh, pretty challenging. And here we are two weeks into the year, and in that first tailwind, yeah. which was trade war resolution, is going to completely unwound, and now it is a headwind. And so, you know, one of the things you pointed out in, in some notes that you were nice enough to share with us is the the continual debate, the, the chestnut of Wall Street, fear and greed. In this sort of market, who's winning? Which side is winning? Oh, I mean, and I think in this market, Jason, in, in one of the analogies that we've invoked in that latest newsletter – but the old adage that markets tend to go up like an escalator and down like an elevator. Right. And this snapback rally that we've undergone in 2019 has been anything but. It's right. more like a bungee cord or, or a trampoline. 
So we've kind of accomplished very little, right? The high point of the, of the Dow is still 1,000 points away, even though year-to-date the Dow is up 10%. Yeah. So I think that tug-of-war is pretty taut right now between the fear and the greed camp, and there's a lot of wait and seeing in the middle that's keeping that ribbon right about at the flat line. So, Doug, what have you been doing over the last couple of weeks? I mean, in terms of on a pullback, do you find opportunities, or have you been more cautious this year? Uh, we have actually found more opportunities. You know, we, have, we try to have kind of across our complex kind of an equal allocation between fixed income and equity. And, you know, both have been imminently challenging this year because the bond rally, and maybe that has been one of the big conundrums, right, so to speak, and that stocks have, have moved 15% higher even for 2019 on the S&P, and the 10 years at a 238. So we've seen a yeah. fantastic rally in fixed income so that fear and greed, going back to Jason's question, are equally represented, and that's not a persistent condition in markets. So in a day like Monday, when you get such a broad-based sell-off because of that heightened fear of a deal maybe never actually taking place in 2019, we absolutely put a little money to work, and we do so in maybe more of a beta fashion. Because when selling gets indiscriminate like that, then a lot of things get really cheap really quickly, and we don't think the valuation of the market broadly is overvalued. So it does offer some interesting entry points with with periodicity. It's not like that is going to take place like the flushing that was in the fourth quarter of 2018, but it is giving us openings and opportunities to continue to round out positions. And when you think about valuations here, you know, at this moment, I mean, this week is ultimately going to end up being sort of a wash. But year to date, as you've uh, alluded to, you know, the major indices are up. You know, we talk to public investors, private investors, private investors, especially private equity firms trying to put money to work. They're concerned about things being super uh, expensive. How worried are you about stocks being expensive here? Yeah, great question. I do think those markets have bifurcated a little bit, Jason, and we've seen private market multiples that are actually at significant premiums to the public market counterparts. That is very unique, right? You're seeing deals get done. I had lunch with a gentleman today, and a company transaction was done for a quarter of the equity in the company at literally seven times sales. And I've not, I've not seen something like that in a long, long time, if ever, maybe going back into the late 90s. But even though the broad market price-wise has seen a pretty steep recovery, look at the earnings that, that defend its valuation. Even in so far, with, we're pretty much done with 92% of companies reporting this quarter. 76% of the S&P companies have reported positive earnings, and 60% have been positive revenue surprises. That's pretty positive, right? Yeah. Revenues year-to-date are up over 5%. And one area where we think valuation is extremely attractive is in healthcare. It had the strongest quarterly earnings reported as a group this year, up over, or I'm sorry, this quarter up over 9%. Right, and beat up over concerns about, you know, more reductions in terms of costs and reimbursements, uh, that healthcare yeah. sector. Hey, Doug, you know, you started, you started off talking and you made some mention of, you know, rate hikes. How do you see the interest rate environment? Because it, you know, we keep calling out our Vince Signorella, who a few months ago, I think towards the end of last year, started talking about, he was talking to other traders uh, that he knows from his trading days and about people talking about a rate cut. And we were like, no, 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 you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. And here we are, May of 2019, and there is the potential and certainly the conversation out there of not just one rate cut by the U.S. Central Bank, but more than that. Yeah, I know. It is amazing just what a difference, not even a year, but six months makes. And, do you believe you know, it? And, do you buy into that? Um, I do. I, I do only in so much as is, is, you know, we're looking at where real money's coming in, which has always divorced itself a little bit from Fed communication. And as you guys know on that WIRP screen on Bloomberg, we're looking at about 90 cent likely to have a cup for the end of this year. Yeah. 
And I, and I do think that if the Fed feels like there is going to be enough slowdown and inflation is not a threat being below that upper bound or the, or the, or the target rate of 2%, they might be able to get away Right, and they did a little bit of an adjustment on the IEOR in the last meeting, mm-hmm. and that was maybe a token gesture. But what it's saying is they're at the ready to try to continue to allow this growth to continue. So I do believe it's a possibility, Carol, for sure. Great. Doug Sioka is mm-hmm. Chief Executive Officer and a partner at Kavar Capital Partners out there in Leewood, Kansas. Come see us, Doug. Always good to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.